Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today, we're going to be delving into the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation, and I'm glad you could join us for this study. I hope it's been enlightening so far, if you've been part of this study as we've been going through the book. If not, I want to encourage you at this point, don't join us at chapter 10. Back up to chapter 1 of Revelation, because we lay a lot of groundwork that helps explain things as we go along. And but you're going to be missing out on a lot of that content and a lot of the framework for understanding what we're discussing if you just dive in now. So I encourage you to go back to chapter one of Revelation and join us for the study. But we are glad to have you along as part of this delving into God's word, of this seeking to, to truly grasp hold of scripture. So again, thank you for joining us today. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we delve into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for blessing us with your word, for giving us these words of encouragement. And Lord, as we study the book of Revelation, help us to understand what we need to understand from it. Help us to take hold of the the symbolism that that relates to things that we can tie it to and, and gives us a framework for understanding your message to the people of that day, the believers of that day, and your message to us today. Because Lord, we acknowledge you are unchanging. And that what you have said to them, you also say to us. So Lord, help us to hear it. Help us to take it as it is intended. Help us to to, to gain a sense of urgency, but also that pervasive hope that leads us through everything we face. That no matter what the situation looks like, no matter what hardships come against us, no matter what persecution we face, Father, that we know the victory is yours and we are united with you. So we share in that victory. Lord, we thank you for your word. And above all, we thank you for your word become flesh for Jesus the Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, giving us eternal life. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, as we look at chapter 10 of Revelation, we're building on this continuing structure. Now, you'll recall that I said we're we're going to look at three main sections in this part of Revelation. There are three sets of seven divine judgments that are covered between chapters six and what 16 roughly and in that you've first off got the seven seals and that culminates with a great judgment great terrible day of the lord in in chapter eight and then as we pick up with the rest of chapter eight we enter into the seven trumpets and in the seven trumpets, we find the plagues reflected and and so on and so forth we're still in that we are in this interlude between trumpet six and trumpet seven. And we're not going to get to seven today because that's at the end of chapter 11. We're covering the first part of that interlude. And in the interlude, there are some interesting things happening. There is uh, a vision. There is some stuff that happens that John's told not to record or not to write down, but to keep secret. And then there's the message of the scroll 
that he has given to eat. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. It's just 11 verses today, but but boy, there's a lot in there. And it heavily reflects back on, uh, well, the book of Zechariah and Zechariah the prophet and, and his experience and what was involved with that, particularly Zechariah chapter two. But uh, if you want some background on that, go back and read Zechariah, and that'll give you a framework for understanding what we're seeing here in the 10th chapter. Now, I've said some things like that before along the way, that part of what we're studying reflects back on Old Testament, much as this, this whole episode of the trumpets and the plagues reflects back to the Exodus and the plagues of Exodus and the symbolism there. The same with the seven seals. We saw that that reflected back to, well, partially with the day of the Lord, it was Isaiah and Joel, but it also went back to Zechariah chapter one. So you see this interesting framework from the Old Testament being carried forward into this vision in the revelation of the New Testament. Now, before we just write that off and go, oh, well, as John was making this up, he was relying on Old Testament source. No, the God that inspired the prophet Zechariah, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet, you know, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, the God that inspired them, that gave them those visions, that gave them glimpses of what was coming is the same God that is giving John glimpses of what is coming. So is it odd at all that those glimpses might be similar? I don't think so. Plus, John is working from a literary history, the whole imagery associated with apocalyptic literature, with hidden literature, um, was done in such a way that certain things had certain meanings. And so if you wanted to convey in this style of literature, you would convey using that symbolism, even some of the number references as we've unpacked a little bit of that along the way. Uh, they have symbolism, they have standard meanings, uh, standard symbolic references, and we can't ignore those. Now, sometimes we do need to temper them because, you know, sometimes a number is a number. Uh, so we kind of have to weigh that and go, okay, what's this look like? Is there backing for it being symbolic or literal? And try to unpack it that way. I would just, again, here in the middle, warn you against delving into the book of Revelation and trying to take it all literal. That's where we get in the trouble. That's where last chapter we start looking at the locust and thinking they're attack helicopters. Um, if we're going to take it literally, then they're obviously not attack helicopters. They're locusts. Um, if we want to take it symbolically, then we really need to deal with what do they symbolize? What do they reference? and approach it that way. And you can go back and listen to that one and see how I unpacked it and, and what slant I take on it. But here we are in this interlude after the seventh trumpet. Now, after a uh, sixth trumpet, sorry, my bad. After we get through the trumpets, then we're back to some more signs. And then in 15 and 16, we get to the bowls, the bowls of wrath being poured out. But in all of these, there's a culmination of it, a conclusion to it of judgment. And as I said early on in this study, I kind of take the approach that what we're seeing in the seals, the trumpets, and so on, uh, even the bowls, is this retelling of the same uh, sequence of events, if you will, all culminating in the great and terrible day of the Lord, in the day of judgment, 
the day of the return, all of that balled together and that it's presented with this back and forth. There is a very much an, an earthly, um, political militaristic type of format given and then there's the presentation of the suffering servant given and there's that contrast built there and we see this ebb and flow as we go through the book of revelation particularly uh, in this middle section the 6 through 16 chapters and we're right in the middle of it so we're at chapter 10 That's just a little bit of background and framework to remind you of how we are approaching this. Uh, I want to be true to the text. And I I said early on in our study of Revelation, and I want to remind you of that, that for me, it's important that we look at this and we try to look for those historical references. We try to look for that framework from the Old Testament uh, for symbolism but that we not drag too much of our, for lack of a better descriptor, our modern baggage into what these passages talk about. Now, if it's prophecy about the future, about the coming day of, well, the coming day of the Lord, then of course it's going to have some applicability in our modern world. But I want to shy away from saying this group of people or that group of people or this nation or that nation is represented by this. Because in the last 2,000 years, that has changed over and over and over again. And I think it's a dangerous game when we start getting that specific one with their labeling. I can remember in my younger days, it was very much this, you know, uh, Eagle represents the United States and the bear represents Russia and, you know, and then drawing on all this symbolism that, you know, somehow Russia was the antichrist or the USSR to be specific was the antichrist. And, and the U S was, was the people siding with God. You know, of course that viewpoint comes out of the U S. Hmm. Um, I think God would probably look at our society and our moral choices and what we embrace and what we reject and, and kind of question whether we're on his side or not. But the point is we can load the book of revelation down with baggage. We can load it down with fiction series that we have read that uh, propose or advance a certain viewpoint or interpretation of revelation. And it clouds our judgment because we start thinking that there's a whole bunch of stuff in the biblical text that, quite frankly, is not in the biblical text. As we go through grasping scripture together, whether it's the book of Romans or the book of Revelation or the book of Genesis or whatever text it is, our goal is to stay rooted in scripture, to cling to the word of God. And sometimes we need context. Sometimes we need background to understand what we're looking at accurately. But I I really want us to stay rooted in God's word. What other people say about God's word can be helpful. It can be edifying. It can be encouraging, but it's not God's word. So as much as I can, I want to stick to God's word. And I appreciate you joining us and delving into this. I know that Revelation can be a very challenging study. 
And um, I'm probably leaving you with more questions than I am answers, but I want to keep driving you back to the text. It's always a good place to end up. So as we start in with verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel. Now, this he's already seen the four horsemen that had been restrained at the four corners being released and all that's going on, the one-third. And now he says, Then I saw another mighty angel. This one's not coming out of a pit or anything else. Coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud. Remember, cloud, that's reference going back to the Old Testament of the manifest glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud, that glowing cloud with a rainbow over his head. Again, rainbow shining around the throne of God uh, leads us back to what was it? Chapter six or somewhere in the first part, it escapes me right now, but in the first part of Revelation, you remember that description of the throne room of God, of, of God's throne in heaven, and of the, the radiant rainbow uh, radiating out from it, and how that also links back to God's covenant with humanity at the time of Noah, after the flood. So all of that is, is packed imagery into this verse. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun. His feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. Now, there's a whole lot in those three verses. I've already unpacked some of the imagery. And it is heavy laden with imagery associated with God. The, the rainbow shining, the clouds uh, this one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, showing dominion and power over both realms of creation. Uh, even the fact that, you know, if you want to take it literally, that he was in the clouds. This angel's huge. Now, the image of that angel standing there is not lost on the first century world. Granted, it was some 200 years before this, a structure fell victim to an earthquake. But it was the Colossus at Rhodes. And the Colossus remains, if you will, of that huge statue to Helios, the sun god, that stood at Rhodes and was an object of worship and reverence. The, the remnants of it were still there. People knew that it was there. There was within the social consciousness and a, an awareness of it. Now they're being presented with this image of something that massively outstrips the Colossus at Rhodes. Being a manifestation of an angel messenger of God that reflects the glory of God in their presence and shows God's dominion over all of it. I mean, it's just, a, it's a, it's an awe-inspiring image. And then you get this, this roaring, a shout like the roar of a lion. 
Uh, we've already talked about the lamb being the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hmm. Could there be something there? Yeah, maybe. But here we're struck with one of those mysteries of revelation, and it's not one we get answered. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear me say it again. The Bible gives us everything we need, not everything we want. He gave a great shout like the roar of a lion, and when he shouted, there's this thing that happens. The seven thunders answered. What are the seven thunders? I don't know. You know what? You don't know either, uh, except that we do have reference in Scripture. Uh, the symbolism from Scripture is that that thunder is the um, a reminder of the power and the strength of God, the voice of God, if you will. So there's that it's evocative of that idea, but what do the seven thunders say? Well, verse four, when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. This is John talking. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Well, there you go. So where can we look to see what that said? We can't. That for whatever reason, we're given a glimpse that this took place, but not an explanation. We're not given clarity there. We're just given the event. Uh, I'd love to give you more. I don't have more. There isn't more there. Now, we could come up with all sorts of ideas about it, and it would all be speculation. Because the voice from heaven, presumably from the throne of God, said, John, keep it a secret. Do not write that part down. Okay. And that brings us to verse 5. It says, Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand towards heaven. Now remember, this angel has something. He has a scroll, small scroll. That'll become important in a moment. But what he's about to do is something that we are familiar with. If you've ever been to court, if you've ever been to jury duty, anytime that you are called to make an oath, at least here in the United States, you are generally asked to raise your right hand and to make that oath. It's a sign of, of commitment. It's a sign of obligation. It is a sign that was actually not common in the first century world. It's, it's not a normal thing. So there's some meaning behind it. Uh, essentially, the, the right hand was seen as the, the seat of power, uh, the seat of authority in the first century world. That when you had a child who was an heir, that child would sit at your right hand. When we see you know, Jesus ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's this passing on of authority that the right hand, the right side symbolizes that. And, you know, that's just the way it was. That's how they would have understood it. So for this massive angel overshadows the, the idol to the god Helios that collapsed, uh, the sun god, hmm, echoes of Apollo from the last chapter. Um, yeah that angel raises the right hand as he's preparing to make an oath. It's, it's a significant symbol and one that's not common for the day and age. 
Now, after this angel raises his hand, it says in verse six, he swore an oath. Now, oaths are not to be taken lightly. We are shown that in scripture. We're told that in scripture. Jesus talked Sermon on the Mount and other places about making oaths and what you swear by and that you do not do it lightly and, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. It speaks to integrity. And, and here this, this angel is speaking, this representative of God is speaking and making an oath, is swearing hand in the air said he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. That's the oath. That is God sending this angelic being, representing him to say, this is it. It's going down. When that trumpet blows, then the plan, well, with no more delay the plan will be fulfilled. That is God giving assurance to his people. That is God declaring to the believers, to the saints still walking the earth, but undergoing tremendous persecution. It is a message to those saints that have been martyred. Remember voices crying out from under the altar, the prayers coming up before God like incense. Yeah, it is a commitment by God, an unwavering commitment sworn on himself that it will end, that the day is coming, that God's mysterious plan, mysterious as in hidden prior to this point, will be fulfilled. Now, what is that plan? What is he talking about? What is that thing? Well, it will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. We can go back to the Old Testament. It is literally dripping in the Old Testament. Well, not literally dripping, but it is dripping in the Old Testament prophets with these references about the day of the Lord, about the culmination of God's plan, about what that means for those that cling to him. This is also a call to repentance within the church and within those that have had exposure to the gospel. It is a call to the church to declare the gospel in their realms. But remember some of those churches these letters are being sent to, this book is being sent to, which is a letter. Some of those churches had turned from their first love or had sold out to their society, their culture, and its prevailing thoughts instead of staying committed to God. Or they had carried the trappings of commitment to God, but were actually living lives that were, um, frankly, sold out to Satan instead of sold out to Christ. All of these things were going on. Some of them were just enduring in humility, clinging to God. For some, it's an encouragement. For some believers, it's a reminder 
It is a call to action. It is a call to rededication and commitment. For some, it is a call to make sure that where they have placed their faith and what they are relying on for salvation is what they think it is. As a pastor, I see this today. I come across people who are dedicated and committed and relying on their church for salvation instead of on Christ. They're committed to their church, not to following Christ. Um, church is a good thing. Church is the the physical manifestation of the body of Christ coming together in worship and in service to him. I'm not bagging on the church at all. I pastor one. But the reality here has a whole lot to do with it. We can make an idol out of all sorts of things that are close or related to God, but aren't God. Part of this is a call to action for us to be sure that we are committed to him, serving him, following him as part of his body, as part of his church. We are in this corporately, but we are individually related to God as well. And we turn to him each for salvation. So all that comes into play. But here we are in these passages, and we've we've had this, this commitment, this, this promise, this swearing that it's coming, that it will be done, it will happen just as it was announced, as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. So there's this big buildup, there's this, it's coming. I saw a little cartoon the other day. It was it was it was kind of silly, but um, it was a question being posed from one person to another about uh, when Lord when the Lord would return, when that day of the Lord would be. And one character in the cartoon was responding to the other, and he said, "I don't know. Uh, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee." You know, it's our job to be ready for when he comes. He's taking care of the plan. Our job's to be ready. So be ready. Well, now we've made it to verse 8. And in verse 8, well, we, we start think, seeing things take a little bit of a symbolic twist. It says, Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again, Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So instead of John writing stuff down, he's called to action here. And, and the voice says, Go take that open scroll from his hand. And it's little, go take it. So he does. Verse 9. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the small scroll. Now we know from the Old Testament the symbolism of that scroll, of taking the scroll. Um, that's a prophetic thing. Uh, the prophets were sometimes described that way. Even this, this vision of taking a scroll, and, and spoiler alert here, he's going to eat it. He's instructed to eat it. We, that's Old Testament too. Um, that imagery is used in the Old Testament for a prophet beginning prophetic ministry is to take the word of God, the scroll, and to eat it. Um, so John's being instructed, go take the scroll. So he does. 
verse nine. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. Wow, there's a cell job. It's going to taste great to begin with, but then it's going to turn, you know, you're going to have sour stomach after this. What does that mean? Well, it means that he is partaking of the word of God, the truth of God, and that that message of God, the scroll, when he takes it, is a great thing. It's beautiful. The word of God is truth. The word of God is sweet. There is that promise of the day of the Lord coming that the angel just talked about. And there is joy and there is hope and there is the beginning of eternity in the presence of God. What's with the sour stomach then? We're not there yet. There is still suffering in the journey. We are not there yet. And there is hardship. And there is loss. Because although all are invited into a right relationship with God, not all accept that invitation. And so we have God's wrath and judgment poured out. So it's sweet. But there's some suffering. There is some suffering there. So when the angel took hold, excuse me, verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it. He said, it will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. Verse 10. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour. It turned sour in my stomach. Now, it sounds kind of crazy, but again, there's Old Testament precedent for it. The whole taking of the scroll, eating of the scroll. It harkens back to previous messages. So it's, it's consistent. It fits the scroll representing the word of God, the prophetic message of God. Then we get to 11 and 11. It's made clear that John has a task. He has been the one charged with eating the scroll. He has tasted its sweetness and he has felt the sourness in his stomach. And verse 11 says, and this is where the chapter ends. He says, then I was told. So here's what eating the scroll means for you, John. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, there's a translation issue in that verse. So it says, then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, that about there can also be translated as against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You may say, well, I don't really see how that changes the verse very much, and it doesn't change it very much. There are shades of meaning of the Greek that's translated there. 
uh, you could go one way or the other with it. It's kind of on the line. And maybe there's not a profound difference there, but there is a little bit of difference when we consider whether this is just a message about things or it's a message against things. Against things kind of implies that God is standing against them and these are the charges being leveled against them. It's it's more direct and accusatory. Uh, I don't like that word. That more direct and, and applicable. I, I don't know. Versus just descriptive. About could imply just a descriptive thing. And there's more of a directed emphasis to this. Reason I shy from accusatory, even though this is God's accusation, his charge against them. That'd be a good Old Testament way to describe it. Um, his charge against them would be there. But since Satan's name literally means the accuser, I'm just kind of shying away from accusing here. Then I was told, you must prophesy about or against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And we're going to see that in the rest of what's unfolding. We're still in this interlude between Trumpet 6 and Trumpet 7. You say, what, he crammed almost two chapters in the interlude there? Yeah, he did. But they're short chapters. Um, we need this image of this angelic being delivering the message of God and committing that, look, the stuff that the prophets were told about, the stuff they were given a vision of God, that mystery shared with them that they knew the day was coming. Well, you know, here's the guarantee. It's going to happen. And you now take the role of the prophet to take God's word and to share it. And that word is against or about many people's nations, languages, and kings. It's going to impact a vast array. Now, are we going to see that? Yeah. Partially, we're going to see that in the next chapter where he's given instruction to go and take measurement of the temple and the outer courts. And and then we get into the, the two witnesses. Uh, they're, they're a dominant part of the next few verses or the next chapter. Um, and a lot has been said about the two witnesses. We'll unpack some of that, okay? But all of that is moving us forward to that seventh trumpet, that great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath and judgment, which is a day of victory for those in Christ. And then we go on to the next round, the, the seven signs that are given and then we get into the bowls and we'll get there we'll unpack all that trust me it's 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 an ongoing process but if you need to go back and read get a sense of the overall flow of what's happening this is taking place in that that pause in the middle kind of like back in um chapter seven so we were opening the seven seals and we got to the seal number six, you know, who can stand the day of the Lord, all this calamity, all this is going on, mountains fall on me because I don't want to face it. Who can stand? And then there's a pause and we're presented with the army of the Lamb of God, the 144,000. And then we pick up again with the seventh seal being opened and the great and terrible day of the Lord taking place. Now we've gone through the trumpets up through six. We've paused here's that interlude again. 
here is that imagery that signifies i i think reflecting back on the lamb's army on who can stand this is answering the question you know it looks so terrible as god's judgments being poured out on the world who can stand who can make it now that question hasn't been posed here but the message of that angel and the prophecy given to john and the promise to the saints both those martyred and those still around that the um mystery of god's plan is being will be fulfilled and that that is guaranteed again that's looking to that day of the lord and our faith that is placed there and the trust that is found there so we see that building again and and there's a whole lot more to unpack in the next chapter so i hope you'll join us again as we dig back into god's word and into the book of revelation and we look at the encouraging message that is found there. It is a call to action. It is a call to commitment, a call to renewal for us. It is a call to salvation for those that do not know Christ. And it is a reminder that the day of the Lord is coming. And we're not in the planning department. We're in the welcoming. Are you ready to welcome him? It's time to be sure. I don't know when it'll be, but I know it's at least a couple thousand years closer than it was. Be ready. Be right with the Lord so that you too can celebrate that great day of the Lord instead of cowering in fear and terror on the terrible day of his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement found there, for the call to know you and obey you. And Lord, that this is not a new message, that this is the message you have given throughout your word, pointing to the day when you would set all things right, when your plan would be fulfilled and your purposes fulfilled in this creation. Lord, we look to that day and we seek to follow you. Give us the words. Help us to reflect your presence, your glory in this world that it might glorify you and draw others to your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this book, as challenging as it is, that it still calls us to you and gives us encouragement and hope in what is to come. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.